Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to Drunk Book Club, where we read stuff you might have heard of and did not bother to read. You may not have heard of the book, but I promise you have heard of the thing the book is related to. Related to? Not the source for or based upon? That would be extremely generous. A reading. Would it? Certainly more than this book deserves. I feel reading it at all is generous. Yeah, far too. My name is Vry, and that other lovely, charming voice you heard is Dorothy. Hello! And we read 1999's The Phantom of Manhattan by Frederick Forsyth, better known as the nominal source material for the 2012 musical Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies. Uh, you know... I don't go here. I do. <laughs> I'm not a member of the f- fandom. I hate that word. What? You can't tell how I was spelling it. They can tell. (laughs) Yeah, listeners. So the Phantom of the Opera, I saw the movie when I was like 13, when it came out in theaters. (laughs) I make no excuses. Would you say it's here? It's in my heart. (laughs) That's where it is. Like, Phantom of the Opera was probably what I would have termed my first, honest to God, hyperfixation, as opposed to, you know, kids. Kids are into things. Kids have phases. I read and watched probably 90% of the adaptations that existed circa 2004. Good for you. Still haven't gotten around to that Argento one, though. I just didn't have it in me to watch the one where he filmed his own daughter having a sex scene. And let's face it. Aziara Gento is, at this point, a hot potato. Mm-hmm. Oh, I will ha- I will climb that mountain someday. Just, you know, not for the podcast. Well, I mean, you'll climb every mountain, right? <laughs> and forward every stream. That's right. I'll do it. And this book has the particular honor of being the first time I, I ever bodily chucked a work of nominal literature across a room physically. Was anybody being tattooed in that room? No. This hasn't got much heft. This probably wouldn't even bother the tattoo artist. I, I'm i just trying to imagine this fucking thing in paperback. Because this is a non-standard aspect ratio for a book. Yeah, Dorothy, can you describe the book-like object you're currently holding? The book-like object? Well, the, the ratio of height to width is clearly designed to evoke the feeling of a playbill. Mmm. Is it now? Clearly, that is the only reason why you would format a book to a non-standard size like this, which would require a reconfiguring of the presses. Surely it's not shaped this way so as to accommodate less text on the page, because why would you ever do that? I don't know. I can't think of... I'm sorry, how many pages is this book long? Because um, it's like an American Girl novel. <laughs> Long, 176 pages. Oh, generous. Whatever version exists out there to buy digitally is only 123. Well, I mean, the, the print's rather large. And um, there's a lot of space between each line. For, stop a uh, new page every time there's a new chapter. There's not a colophon explaining exactly what font it is, but it, there's a lot of space. Uh, what we're saying is that this is... It doesn't have any illustrations, though. <laughs> Which is... You know what? I had more fun reading Blood Communion than this book. 
Blood Communion's twice as long. Blood Communion has Armand in it. What does this book have? Yes. Go on. Shit. I forgot. No! How did you forget? (laughs) My brain was trying to protect me. (laughs) Yeah, this is at best a novella stretched out to a full-length hardback release. Physically stretched out. Not just in terms of writing. It's not just that it's padded writing. It's that this book is stretched through formatting. Although. It's like... Every one of you fuckers out there who upped Times New Roman to size 13. And we can tell, by the way. <laughs> you can tell when the, when the period is enlarged? That's, what, that's another trick I've heard. Yes. Don't enlarge your periods, folks. You'll just get really bad cramps. No, no, we can tell. It's just half the time it's not worth the effort to fight you. This was probably my first experience with published fanfic that I recognized as such in that it's bad. Which seems demeaning, but things only get called published fanfic when they're bad. There's a whole thing there. Yeah. Like, you don't hear that many people going around calling Wide Sargasso Sea published fanfic. Or, uh... Even though it is. And it's good. I have literally started lectures by talking about Milton just to piss people off. Milton and his... Really horny Satan thirst fic? Mm-hmm. It blows people's fucking minds when you go through an entire explanation of what fan fiction is and then bring Milton into it and they can't actually refute any of it. Love that Bible fic. Uh-huh. It leaves them shattered and they have to sort of rebuild their whole perspective. It's very fun. I would recommend it. This is the textbook case of what people think of when they think something is bad fanfic, though. Like, it's it's a shitty sequel that the original didn't really have space for. It rewrites characters that the author didn't like. It rewrites characters the author did like. Yep. There's The timeline is complete and total garbage. The pacing is rushed. There's just bad fact-checking here, which is funny and will bring up why. But, be- you know, before we do that, I feel like... That's diving into things proper, and we haven't told people what you made us to drink yet. Uh, Tonight we are drinking a cocktail called a Phantom. It is made with one part vodka, one part Quarante Tres, and two parts milk. Quarante Tres, or Liquor 43, is is an orange and vanilla liqueur. It's going to sound like this is creamsicle but it doesn't taste that chemical and artificial. It's mostly more of a sort of almost vanilla rum flavor creamy cocktail with um, a hint of sort of orange blossom or orange oil underneath. It's good shit. Yeah, it's very pleasant. Personally, I find cream cocktails very hard to stomach after the first one. They're just really filling for me, so I might switch to a Manhattan afterwards. My preferred Manhattan is rye. Sweet vermouth, a spoonful of maraschino cherry liquid, and both a cherry and a lemon garnish. And while Manhattans are pretty straight up, I do prefer them on the rocks. And uh, our listeners on our Patreon will have access to the recipes for all of this, including virgin recipes for those of you who don't drink alcohol or don't necessarily want to all the time. It's nice. I got to look at it while she was working on it. It's a really useful recipe book. But this is one of those cases of, I needed a freaking drink. (laughs) 
<laughs> Dorothy Dorothy didn't believe me. Normally she picks the bad books or we or it's something that we know is coming up. Uh-huh. Or yeah, one we both haven't read or it's something she is inflicting on me, but I got to do the inflicting this time. And you didn't realize. This is just See, I was like, okay, I'll read this and it'll be like bad, I guess, but because I'm not in the fandom, I'm going to shove you off the chair if you keep doing that. It's a stool. I'll find a chair to shove you out of. <laughs> I figured I wouldn't be that bothered, but this is just badly written. It's like really from painful. a purely structural level, it is obnoxiously written. You mean like the fact that uh, it wants to do that thing where every chapter has a different narrator who is a secondary observer of the actual participants in the drama? Yeah, it's got a floating perspective, except for when it decides to be, you know, intimately involved in the drama. And all of them have the same voice, even when it's trying to have different voices. Like when Charlie Bloom is on screen. He's certainly from New York. He certainly is an extra from Newsies. Until he's a college professor, suddenly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that certainly is a style a person could use, except for the fact that the book opens in the prologue with Eric's point of view. Well, none of the narration can be fucked to actually present a different perspective on anything other than complete worshipful adoration of the author's faves. Like, nobody actually differs in their opinion on anything. Yep. So it ends up being, every chapter is like a really boring recap of the last chapter or a chapter before that with slightly new information added on. It's, it feels like a fanfic that didn't have a roadmap. It just wanted to keep updating. So it was constantly at the, at the top of the page. So you go over the action again, but with a, with slightly different details. And most of the perspectives are not justified. They're not characters that are involved or transformed or enlightened by these interactions with the characters. I guess Charlie Bloom has a career because of his interaction. No, with this. he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't publish a story about it. It's the story he didn't publish his whole career. So it's a total null for him. But he was certainly there. Yeah. Because but he didn't because he knew the drama just would be so much greater if he just didn't write a story about the time he witnessed a murder. Yep. No scoop there for an up-and-coming member of the papes of yellow journalism. No, no, he didn't work for that paper. That's the other thing. The author can't really stand for anybody except one character to be at all immoral. So it's it's shockingly banal. It feels germane to mention at this point that Frederick Forsyth is a British author, and this is decidedly outside his wheelhouse. Normally, he this wrote is about America. Well, and normally he wrote spy fiction. This is like when you go through Wes Craven's uh, filmography, and you've got horror movie, horror movie, horror movie, music of the heart, horror movie, horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> but why would he choose to write this, right? Oh my God! What what could his motivation be? Should we talk about the plot or should we talk about the motivation first? No, we have to talk about this fucking prologue. Because it's the worst thing. It still <laughs> gives me an aneurysm simply to look at it. <laughs> I'm glad you're having fun. <laughs> I still had to read the fucking thing. I make my fun where I may. So here's the I would have never had a chance to be exposed to this. <laughs> Because who's going out of their way to read this? Not me. 
So the thing about the Phantom of the Opera, which I can tell you after reading many, 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 many versions of it. (laughs) That's just the great start to any conversation. In fact, that's the start to the prologue. Let me tell you about my special interest. (laughs) It's not like Les Mis where everybody's like, yeah, you know, you can read the brick, but the musical at the very least gets most like gets to the emotional heart of what's going on in the story. It more or less captures it. You know, there is a version that you could quote unquote call definitive and that it hits all the biggest notes. And I don't, I don't think there is a version like that for Phantom because the novel is so weird. No, no, I'm going to do this sincerely. And then we're going to talk about the shit. Okay. So tell me about the novel. Uh, so, like, the novel is this weird little pot boiler that's partly because LaRue wrote detective novels, and partly he wanted to do this faux historical thing where he starts out with this nominal narrator who is him, who's like, this really all happened, I swear. Like 20 years ago, I promise. I have all the documents, for realsies, and it all went down like this. So it's partly that, and it's partly, like, a love story with your two, you know, cute ingenues. And fuck you, internet. Raul and Christine are cute as shit, and they were childhood friends, and they would go around and annoy the people of the town by by asking them to, for stories and then refusing to go away until they did. And that's fucking cute. They're cute. Um, and, But, like, then there's also the horror element, and there's also the fact that it's a really Christian novel. Like, I feel like you have to just reckon with that when you're talking about it because it's about the ultimate power of forgiveness as a humanizing force and that you just gotta you just gotta roll with that if you're gonna interact with the text so like you have there are a bunch of different adaptations and they all kind of take a version of it some of them take the horror bent most of them go in hard on the romance element and just water it down to like a love triangle with some spooky elements and none of them have ever really like encompassed all the shit it's doing. And of course there's the fact that, you know, this novel is hideously problematic from the jump from a disability studies perspective. There are about 8 million papers on it and I will link you some in the show notes cause it's interesting. Y'all should read about it. Yeah. And I will make sure to link ones that are open access I have access to more, but obviously, like, yeah, we want y'all to be able to read them. So you have you have a lot of different versions, and a lot of them are, are good in their own ways, but none of them are really like, yes, this perfectly captures the spirit of the novel. But the one that's the most popular is Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1980s version, which came out of the mega-musical era, also largely started by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which means that its its predominant charms are the fact that it's big and spectacular and it's got all of these heightened emotions drawn very broadly and people respond to that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I may or may not have been able to sing that musical back to front. There were times. I see why people love the musical. Right, because you're a soprano, aren't you? Okay, but that was, like, my my go-to party trick in high school, is that I could, in fact, sing Christine's part, which has been has bedeviled many a soprano over the years because it was specifically written for Weber's then-wife, Sarah Brightman, who has just a freakishly large range. This amuses me because my mom was super into Sarah Brightman. 
No, she wasn't into musicals at all. She was just, she just really liked checking out and ripping Sarah Brightman albums from the library. A worm. That's how I got the other Phantom of the Opera musical. Rest in peace. Hey, y'all do me a favor and just, like, go look up the Yeston Coppet Phantom of the Opera. Like, all the ones name dropped in the opening of this book. Yeah, so now we have to come back around to this fucking <laughs> prologue. Like I said, I get why people like the Phantom musical. So, genuine question here, though. Yes? Why does everybody hate Andrew Lloyd Webber when everybody likes Andrew Lloyd Webber? Elaborate. He seems really popular, and yet y'all hate him. He's like the Roland Emmerich of musical theater. His shit is really big and bombastic. He's, if not single-handedly, then largely responsible for the mega musical that started in the 80s and basically carried on until the bubble burst. And yeah, Cats. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I could have just said Cats. <laughs> that's the... The mega musical. No, I mean, under... I did grow up seeing Cats ads throughout mm -hmm. the 90s. Yeah. It was an inescapable punchline for decades. I don't know. It's like it, a little bit of it is snobbery because, you know, it, he's not Sondheim. His music is super easy and it's very basic pop stuff. Those are the two modern musical creators that I know the names of. You I did it. I don't know them, but I know those names. Yay. Sondheim is the one that pretentious people, including myself, Sondheim's like. the one that does musicals about murder, right? He did a musical about murder. Yes. <laughs> He's edgy? Well, no, he just, he likes to do shit in different genres. Like, he did Sweeney Todd, and then there's A Little Night Music, where literally everything is written in triplets. All the songs are trios, or all the music. He's He likes to do theme shit. Mm. So every mus musical is basically a different style or a different musical trick he wants to try out. Mm. So, so they're all sort of concept pieces uh -huh. rather than... Yeah. Composition nerds fucking love Sondheim. Mm. So, so it's not so much a thing where he's necessarily improving on one thematic element throughout his work. It's each one is a discrete project of improvement. Mm -hmm. And as like, if you're an actor, Sondheim is like the respectable one because he tends to hire singers who can act as opposed to actors who can sing where you know musical theater is kind of a disreputable art form that act most actors try to get out of by the time they hit their 30s because it's seen as kind of juvenile well doesn't your voice tend to start to degrade by your 30s anyway that i don't know so much about but i would believe it i mean i thought i had heard that their ranges tend to contract after that but that might not be true i mean unless you're bernadette peters yeah i can't imagine you can belt out like that well plus as you get older especially if you're a woman Good news, you can play Mama Rose, but there is an ever-shrinking pool of parts for you. Mama Rose, the witch, um... Yep. Yeah, there's a couple more, but I can't think of them right and now. And Bernadette Peters has played all of them. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it's because, like what's going on in Phantom, musical theater tends... It doesn't... It's not always the case, but musical theater on Broadway tends to be broad. So it's not testing your acting chops as much. Which... So Frederick Forsyth is close personal buddies with Andrew Lloyd Webber. I can't be that close. <laughs> he is of an acquaintance with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like, clearly they hang out, but... <laughs> they have had a conversation. Possibly two. Okay, so here's the thing, folks. The opening to this is both infuriating and deeply embarrassing. 
Do you know the man who wrote it? I hate it so much. This book is ridiculous, by the way. It's got, like, fancy headers that look like wrought iron lampposts. Oh yeah, it's pretentious as shit. Here we go. Excuse me whilst I die. Like most perceptions of extreme acuteness, Lloyd Webber's judgment looks simple enough in hindsight, but was destined to change the world's attitude to this ill-used legend. He saw that it was not basically a horror story at all, nor one based on hatred and cruelty, but a truly tragic tale of obsessive but unrequited love between a desperately disfigured self-exile from the human race and a beautiful young opera singer who eventually prefers to give her love to a handsome aristocratic suitor. So Andrew Lloyd Webber went back to the original story, pared away the unnecessarily unnecessary illogicalities and cruelties featured by LaRue, and extracted the true essence of the tragedy. Excuse me while I fucking barf. So I know you reread the original for this. Uh-huh, I did. So adaptations of Phantom of the Opera don't give a shit about Christine. And that pisses me off more as I age. And I don't think it's Sarah Brightman's fault, again, musical theater is broad, but she really doesn't have a lot to do in that show but be a blinking, doe-eyed ingenue. And Christine in the books is an ingenue, but within the constraints of the fact that this was a novel written in 1910, she kind of kicks ass. Like, she's blonde, and she's pure of heart, and all of that shit, because those are the requirements. But she's also described as, as being, like, this very forthright person who always speaks her mind and is interested in justice. There's this very excellent little undercurrent in the novel that somebody wrote an essay about, and I'll link that as well, that talked about this sort of undercurrent of depression and suicidal ideation that Christine faces throughout the course of the novel. Again, a very, very Christian work where she she steals a pair of scissors at one point while, uh, you know, because death before dishonor, basically, while she's being kidnapped by Eric. And which really then feeds into this, the famous climax, which you won't know where Eric basically tells her, here's this fancy device thingy, if you... Either you fuck me or I murder thousands of people. Uh-huh, basically. And something about bugs. Yeah, it's a grasshopper, and if she turns the lever, then one way, then everybody blows the fuck up because they're on a giant powder cake. And somehow acquiescing to this. It's a big deal because like she- Well, no, but somehow acquiescing to this means she actually wants him instead of this is literally rape. Yep. But like for her as a character, it's a big deal because she up to that point had kind of been somebody who would have rather died. Big deal for her to take that step. And then he lets her go and I have a feeling about it because this is not a fucking- romantic love story as such but it's kind of sweet isn't she being essentially at this point betrayed by somebody in a paternal role to her as well in the book because she had associated the phantom with her father that's true prior to that right i mean so she's at least an avuncular situation she starts out assuming yeah well i mean she assumes until he takes her down he, he kidnaps her the first time and takes her down to his weird lake house at which point the, the the jig is pretty much up. That he's horny for her. Mm-hmm. Well, even then in the book, that's not... I c- you could at least make the argument that this is a weird motherfucker who is so, like, starved for human affection that he's not actually sexually interested in her at all. Just has, like, this sort of nebulous 
attraction to the fact that she pretty in a very G-rated way. Like, he talks about wanting to- Ah, yes, this notorious sadist of the torture chambers of Turkey or whatever. Listen, he didn't do the torture. totally unaware. Listen. I'm just saying. Oh, Every detail I know about this makes him look worse, not better. Fair enough. But I mean, like, he's he's painting- to me at least painted as this kind of character who is very cut off from human experience in a way that both allows him to be just, you know, distantly cruel in the fact that he designed fucking torture chambers for people and also just like very unsure of how to express affection in a healthy way. Like he wants to make her his wife and take her to the park on Sundays. And that's his idea of what marriage will be like. That's not okay. But the concept of agency on her part escapes him. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely entirely. Because like many rapists, he believes that if he causes her to acquiesce verbally. Oh yeah, listen, Eric is not a great guy. But like, again, it's the central conceit of the novel that that there is like the power of of forgiveness and and recognizing somebody is, is pitiable and worthy of love and some shit. That's just the kind of narrative it's telling. Cool. (laughs) You seem unimpressed. I'm deeply unimpressed based on my own personal experiences. Fair enough. It's a tough story, right? Because, like, he is a fucking stalker and abuser and... Well, and it it makes... It's very like Pamela in that it makes her suffering and, and near violation essentially even her perseverance through that a vehicle for his redemption mm. rather than ex- an experience she has. And yet... There's still more focus on her narrative in the book than in any other adaptation. I'm not saying it's the worst. I'm just saying that... No, yeah, you're right. It's it's still inherently limited by the what's going on with that shit at the time. Although I would argue that even at that point, Eric's more object than subject. So it's not about him so much as what he represents. Because clearly this novel did not think about him so much at all, ex- except in the Quasimodo grotesque sense. Which brings us to Lon Chaney. He put on some good makeup. I watched that movie. It's good makeup. She is certainly doing silent acting. The the idea of a silent phantom of the opera. I've seen it and it's just still so funny to me. Because you can't. (laughs) You're going to play the piano real aggressively while the folks are watching. Okay, but nothing quite beats the wishbone phantom of the opera where they've just sat this dog (laughs) at an organ. And it's precious. The wishbone adaptation of everything is the best. That's true. He has a little mask on his face. <laughs> it's very cute. Wishbone was the best series. It was right up there with Ghost Rider. Not Ghost Rider. No, no. Different. Ghost Rider. The Canadian one. About the nice children. And their weird spectral friend would encourage them to read. All of this to say, Andrew Lloyd Webber's decision to make this into a tragic love story or some shit is not the perfect version of the story, especially because the musical doesn't really give much of a shit about Christine and her inner life. It's about how mean it is that she wouldn't want to fuck this dude who lives in a basement, right? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, she's got places to go and and things to do. And a dude who actually gives a shit about, like, who she is as a person and not like a- She's not obligated to fuck this basement dweller. Mm Mm-hmm. Who- BT Dubs, in the book, dies almost immediately after he lets her go because he has horrible lung mold. Yeah, you would. Because you live near an underground lake. He's Gollum. Yeah. Complete with the same hair. There's a lot. Yeah, uh, by the way, this prologue after talking about how Lloyd Webber, with whom 
he is bestest buddies, found the perfect version of the story, goes on to critique the original novel, shall we say. That's a word that can be used. It's not a word I would use because it doesn't fit in the technical sense. He goes on to shit on the original novel. (laughs) Yep. For not being historically accurate enough to itself. He really thought that LaRue should be taken to task for his no-it-totally-happened historical framing. He must really hate the Coen brothers. But he's so good at historical details. Okay, so here's the thing. When I write historical fiction, I am very attuned to this issue. It is something I pay a lot of attention to. I do a lot of research for it. I know, however, that 100% of the time, I will fuck up at some point. There will be a detail that I'll miss. Since I knew this, and since this prologue irritated me so much, I opened this book, turned to the first page, started reading, and just started googling absolutely every single detail that was featured. And on page... Seven! (laughs) We have characters eating toffee apples in France in the 1880s. Toffee apples were invented in 1908 in the U.S. Very easy to shit on somebody else's research. When they were doing that research in 1910, it's very easy to shit on somebody's research when they were doing that research in the 90s. Because I have access to Google. It is amazing. It's amazing the transitive properties of bullshit. Uh Uh-huh. I have access to a lot more research tools than he did. And he has a lot access to a lot more than Gaston LaRue. The fact that he's going off on LaRue for not knowing when exactly the opera house had electric lights versus gaslighting. Which is very important to the big moment in the book. Is very, very shallow to me. And because he's hanging his hat on why LaRue is a bad author on all of these details and using that as an excuse to say his writing of emotional moments is bad. Those are different issues. I got seven pages in and found a verifiable research failure. Guess what? If you're reading like that, you'll find it. That's the problem with uncharitable reading. Which he was doing. You mean like the part where he, he gets real mad at the Persian? And all the people who've only read the books shed a single tear. The Persian is like Eric's BFF who goes around saying hey to him and running errands. And he <laughs> and like doing an info dump to Raul at some point in the novel. And he never ever makes it to any of the adaptations, poor dude. But, but, but Forsyth has- my fave look bad. He does! He says my fave did bad things ever. And that just doesn't make sense. Forsyth just literally turns Eric into an incel. He lives in his mom's basement. Yep. Frederick Forsyth contends that there's no way Eric could have traveled the world and ended up in the opera house because he would have been he, he would have been a happy adjusted person out in the world and could w- would never have retreated from society. But not would have become jaded and bitter about his disability and people's reactions to it over time. And thereby retreated into a building that he could H.H. Holmes his way into controlling every aspect of. You know, just saying. Nice name drop. Thank you. Thank you. appropriate. Like, even more than that, even more than, that's basically AU fodder, fucking whatever, half the adaptations rewrite Eric's backstory. 
The fact that he says, no, no, Joseph Bouquet died totally on accident and Eric had nothing to do with it. What's a Joe Bucket? <laughs> it's like the really big moment early in the musical and and in the story where you learn that Eric ain't fucking around and he's not just like a harmless weirdo who creeps around the walls. He's a murderer. There's no such thing as a harmless weirdo who creeps around the walls, but go on. Bouquet is basically this stagehand who's been shit-talking the Phantom to scare the chorus girls. And then he drops the fuck down on a wire halfway through a show. And people are like, what the fuck? And it's very dramatic. And, and the soundtrack goes, so you're, saying, bah, 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 bah. so you're saying he was right to shit-talk the Phantom. He didn't keep his hand at the level of his eye, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and Frederick Forsyth is like, no, that guy probably died on accident. Eric just found him like that. Honest to God, hand to my heart. He's trying to pull that move out of all the worst fanfics. Eric did nothing wrong. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> nothing. Until he was ensnared by the evil god Mammon. Which brings us to this book. Okay, so this book was a running punchline, and there's a good reason for that, even in the 2000s. Because this is more the- of a kickline, wasn't it? A. I, I don't know much about theater. There are no kick lines in Phantom of the Opera, but it would be improved by one. This is the book that people describe as the one where Eric goes to Coney Island and wears a clown suit, <laughs> which is a factually accurate description of the prologue. From his perspective. Yeah. So this is not a sequel to the novel. <laughs> this is a sequel to the musical specifically, where he just, you know, you have the ending of the musical and it's like a big cathartic moment and he fucks off and only leaves the mask and... Frederick Forsyth is like... The mask, which... How is the mask? Uh, this is a thing that only bothers me and is extremely irrationally petty, but I don't like the third degree of microwave burns. I know why they had to be done for stage, because Michael Crawford couldn't talk with the full mask that they were trying out in previews, but I hate the half mask. But this here's a book, so they could really make it anything, couldn't they? Why, yes, they certainly could. Oh, also, um, this decided that... The play occurred in either 1894 or 1893, depending on how hard he's fucked up his timeline in any given chapter. That's fun. It's like shredding I, I the know setting. You, I know you weren't paying attention to it. Never do. But I always do math. You're very good at fandom math. And I am not. Okay, but we open on The Confession of Antoinette Giry. By the way, all of these chapter titles would be improved by the addition of Harry Potter and... 100% true. They're all formatted that way. Yeah, we open with killing Madame Giri the fuck off because it wouldn't be a bad fanfic if you didn't axe half the cast. And also establishing that Meg is disabled now and can't dance because nobody's allowed to do anything except Christine. Which is weird because this novel is profoundly uninterested in Christine except as an object of desire. That's her entire function, yes? I hate it, thank you. But She, she is dying destitute with nuns, but she has a stash of gold that she's saved- for Eric, because he's much more important. Yeah, so this goes with the what became the background for the movie, if y'all recall, where she encountered him at a uh, like a freak show with a circus and helped him escape and hid with him the under the opera apples. house. And for some reason, Meg doesn't remember this. She was an adult at this time, I guess. Well, no, Meg was three years old when that happened. Oh, no, no, I mean Madame Giri in the movie, they made her like a little girl about Eric's age, which was a choice because she looks so much older than Gerard Butler as an adult. 
this this franchise is just a big number of decisions. <laughs> this powerhouse franchise. God. And um, Madame Giri gets fucked real good in the afterlife. I'm not wrong. She got the buffman of her dreams. It, this establishes a theme of women who want to fuck one dude, but then are prevented. And it, it makes them a bad person if they ever fuck another dude. For yep. whatever reason. How dare and they? And they deserve to be punished by that dude turning out to be terrible or defective. Foreshadowing. So it turns out Madame Giri's husband was terrible because she once wanted to fuck another dude who died. Thus was doomed to a life of unhappiness. And also Meg shouldn't even exist. Yep. On account of that. But on the bright side, she did find Eric and bring him home and stuff him under an opera house. So she dies, sends that gold off to him in the city. Along with a note explaining a very important detail that he needs to know. Just a very... Why couldn't she keep her fucking mouth shut? This whole plot would have not happened if she had kept her fucking mouth shut about things that were not his business. At all. In no way were they his business. Not even a little bit. She didn't even know that that was relevant to the situation. Nope. Christine knows this important business. She is the only one who needs to know. Yeah, so meanwhile, Eric has escaped Paris and swum his way across... Well, he took a boat, but... Well, but he he decided he couldn't get through Ellis Island looking all fugly-like. So instead, he hops off the boat and swims for an hour in below freezing temperatures, because this is salt water, but he swims for over an hour and is crusted with frost when he emerges. Oh, but it's just because he's such a superhuman, uh... No. No, this has to be historically believable to have happened in reality, otherwise it's bad writing. Oh, you're right, that's my bad. So he would have been dead in how many seconds? Well, he it's entirely possible he would have gone into shock within minutes. He would have been unconscious within 45 minutes and would definitely have been dead after that hour he spent in the water and would not have been able to make that swim. Again, if you read uncharitably... <laughs> amazing i feel like we have like yeah i feel like that's a note we have to make we particularly because we are a people who have vastly enjoyed adaptations to original works at various points in our lives yes but i i was specifically at this point in this book reading uncharitably because forsyth oh went no on about yes no 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 i i get that but i just mean like in general I feel like there's a difference with this book. How do I word? It presents itself as a perfected and obvious truth. In a way that's really obnoxious and also so very punch-downy. Yeah, because um, he comes ashore on Coney Island and finds a bunch of people with visible disability. And... They let him near their fire, and it's like the first time anybody's ever done that other than Madame Giri in his whole life. And he's sitting there at their fire, where they're telling him where to get work, gutting fish and stuff, and he's thinking, Unlike the rest of the outcasts who would gut fish for all of their lives and never rise above it through their own doltish stupidity, I knew that with wit and ingenuity I could get out of these shacks and make a fortune from the pleasure parks, even then being planned and built further along the island. Like, am I supposed to like this fucker? <laughs> Allegedly, I yes. Don't. Holy shit, this bone book has a boner for the American dream, though. 
It's weirdly Catholic, considering that it's all about the Protestant ethic. So Eric tells all those disabled people who took him in when, you know, all he wanted was to be shown a single, a single sign of human kindness once in his life. But we're throwing that out the window now. He tells them to fuck off and he goes and gets him a clown suit and goes to Cody Island. Like you do. And then he meets another character. Holy shit. Uh, yeah, so he gets him a dude. Darius. Yep. Who for some reason doesn't go by Darius through a large chunk of the book because I think the author didn't assign him a name in his early drafts. (laughs) I would not be surprised. He's a very functional character. (laughs) Darius is from Malta, which... And he's basically Armand. Yeah, because it turns out he, he was a child sex slave who escaped that. And that is a reflection on his character. How, you might be asking, I don't know either, but it it does seem to reflect poorly on him and his character. Because he wanted money. So here's the thing. Now, Forsyth is not a theater guy, but me, a person who has a degree in theater, my immediate association with the country of Malta is Guccio. It is not. The, the, the beloved goose mascot and Crow the Robot's uh, d- dislike of Maltese men. Nope, Guccio is far more endearing and lovable. You, you do not recall Final Justice specifically from Menace T3K? I do not. I remember the poster. And Guccio is good. I have seen clips of Guccio. You showed me excitedly. Rip Guccio. No, my association is with the play The Jew of Malta, which was contemporaneous to Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. And made The Merchant of Venice look like a chill, sympathetic play. What happens in The Jew of Malta? I mean, it's similar, except that you don't have the speech, and dude is way more out-and-out, like, slimily villainous. Ah. Yep, it is about villainizing a Jewish man. For for working as a money lender and handling gold? Uh Uh-huh. I... Hmm. So listen, I don't know if that's what Frederick Forsyth was thinking. I don't know if that's what most people think of when they think of Malta. But that's what I think of. And Darius, uh... Well, his entire thing is that... So Eric gets him to be basically his go-between guy because... He's young and hot. Yeah. He has this line about how I thought how we could be friends at first, but then I realized... Darius only cared about money, that he would, like, basically sell me to Satan for one corn chip. (laughs) Okay, but fuck Eric, he's an asshole. He is an asshole. I don't care. But it's, it's so tragic. And, and what does Eric ever do to offer anyone friendship? Because it seems like he just sits there like a soggy bag of mushrooms, (laughs) waiting for somebody to hug him. And guess what? You gotta get out there. You're telling you Eric be, to get a profile? You gotta be friendly to somebody else, too. Like, maybe if you had been nice to this traumatized former child sex slave. No, no, no. He is soulless, and he has sold his soul to Mammon, the god of money. That's not a joke. Nope, it's super not. That happens in dialogue. There are whole... We literally talk to both God and Satan in this book. Who seem to objectively exist in this universe. This very grounded <laughs> historical universe. Also, he smokes opium to commune with, with Maman. So, um... So that's a thing. 
Yeah, we're not... Are we saying this is anti-Semitic? <laughs> I mean... It feels like there was a draft, is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like there was a draft where... Uh, but but Charlie Bloom is Jewish. Hmm. He's good looking for a Jewish guy. Is, I believe, the line. Which is anti-Semitic. No, no, that's just comedic self-deprecation. It's From lovable. From his own perspective. Is Forsyth Jewish? I don't believe that he is. He is associated with UKIP, though. What's UKIP? Is that like a kipper? Huh? <laughs> no. UKIP is the uh, party that was formed, pre- was predominantly influenced by the writings of Boris Johnson. Mm. They were, the, they really hate immigrants. Also, Frederick Forsyth has been part of an organization that was pro-Brexit since at least 2007. So shortly after this. Uh-huh. I don't understand why he's writing about America at all, though. Because he seems so full of contempt for it. And yet he's really committed to the setting. And again, this that boner that for the American dream. This setting that he didn't research, he, he, he but he thanks the author of The Alienist for doing the research for him. Which is so tacky. Here's the depressing thing, is I can now sum up the rest of this novel once Eric basically gets established, opens a couple theme parks, and becomes... And teams up with Oscar Hammerstein to open an opera that's not the Met, because the Met's full of snobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can sum it up in about two sentences. He uses his position to get Christine to come and play at his new opera house because he wants to creep on her one more time. He get She gets there and he finds out that apparently they fucked one time. I don't know where that fits in the timeline. Well, she, she even says that she was basically unconscious when it happened, but we gloss over that. Yeah, we just walk right past that. Right past the fact that it was rape. Yup. And so that's his kid. And she, because... Because she has a kid. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, who is 12 or 13, depending on what chapter we're in. And she's like, listen, when he turns 18, I'll tell him that you're his bio dad. And he can do what he wants. Just, like, fucking chill till then. And he's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That seems reasonable. And then proceeds to not that, because he doesn't care about boundaries. See the fact that he fucked her while unconscious. And then proceeds to scheme as to how he will steal this son he didn't know he had until, like, a day ago from her. Also, Raoul isn't there until the last scene in the book. Uh, yes. Her husband's just busy. It wouldn't be a bad fanfic if we didn't write out- I mean, there's almost a graceful amount of restraint in the fact that it just writes him out, honestly. Compared to what? You know what. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but you have to talk about the Facebook group. So when the musical came out in 2010, there was a Facebook group that was made in response to it called... The musical was called Love Never Dies. And the Facebook group was called Love Should Die. (laughs) That is a level of salt you just don't normally see concentrated on Facebook, and it warms my heart every time I hear it. Except for the Anne Rice Facebook fandom. But they well, concentrate outwards. That's true. Speaking of punching down. <laughs> and the reason we know that it's Eric's son is the weirdest writing decision I've seen in a good long time. <laughs> so Madame Giri on her deathbed realizes that there is one thing she needs to tell Eric before she dies. 
as her soul is shuffling off its mortal coil, the most important thing she can think to write in a letter to the man she raised as a son, kind of, except that she put him in a basement, and also who she hasn't, like, had any contact with in, like, 12 years, but, like, probably he's still around somewhere in America. I'll just send a, an investigator to find him, I guess. Yeah, it's fine. It'll work out. Is BT Dubs. I rescued Raul, another dude. <laughs> Raul's dick is broken. <laughs> yeah. Raul has a broken dick. <laughs> yup. What the fuck? You could have just not told him that and this whole thing would have been avoided. And it's so petulant. <laughs> business. Because Raul having a broken dick only happens to assure us that nobody else has ever touched that pussy. She, bought, she banged one time. And her whole life got pregnant. But we are assured that he will be horny for her. As is the priest that's part of her entourage, who is also horny for her. And every other man who encounters her is horny for her. Because the important thing is that she's desired. That's what establishes her value within the construct of this universe. Is that men desire her. Shit's fucked. And frankly, maybe that's why she decided to marry Raoul. Because, because now she has an ace husband and she can never fuck. I mean, I don't think he's ace. Because he's horny for her. That's true. He has hands and a tongue. They can work this shit out. He's got a prostate. Guess what? They're fine. They're doing prostate fine. Prostate fingers. We can work this out. <laughs> You're right. They were probably very happily married. Because, reiterate my last point, they cute. <laughs> <laughs> he clearly trusted her enough to marry her. And tell her about his busted his... dick. Yeah. <laughs> Which he got by being heroic during a mugging. Yep, he saved Bottom Jiri from a mugging and got... <laughs> shot unfortunately in the junk and it <laughs> severed an artery and they fixed it somehow and he didn't die of infection but his dick's broke <laughs> it's still on and he still lusts but his dick is broke again there are pr plenty of options here get more creative forsyth <laughs> no no Th there is only one way to have sex and it is missionary excuse me <laughs> pnv and missionary uh. <laughs> Eric's, Eric bothers her by sending a monkey. Her son is a mechanical genius, which, like, it's a good fucking thing he is, because Eric was counting on a lot of imponderables here for the kid to dismember, essentially a Furby. <laughs> That's right, because we had to bring back that ugly fucking monkey from the musical. He essentially cuts up a Furby, discovers that you can flip the tape inside it. It's actually a, a disc for the mechanism. And it, now it plays Masquerade, and she's like, oh shit, dead dick. Fuck, I thought I got <laughs> rid of that asshole. <laughs> they go to Coney Island, and there's, there's a an irritating fucking reporter character who doesn't report anything. But he sure does ferry them around from place to place, and there's a whole bit in the Hall of Mirrors, because for somebody who hates the entire torture background, and the Persian, he sure is horny for including that entire image. Because it's a thing Eric's good at. Uh... We have to include all the things that Eric's good at, but strip them of any context that might make him a bad person for using them. She's never frightened or alarmed or confused by anything. She's just kind of chill with it. Yep, she, she's just really annoyed, and frankly, it's good. <laughs> she's we get, so tired. We get a 
billion fuckwit perspectives throughout this and never once Christine, and I want to know how fucking tired she is by all of this and how unimpressed. I like to pretend she faked her death. Yes. Yeah, because this is all leading up to Darius finds oh, wait, out- no, no. We haven't talked about how hard it dunks on Nellie Melba constantly for no reason because a flesh and blood actual person can ever compare to Christine. Yeah, she she likes filthy money and agreed to come for filthy money. Not like that ingenue Christine who only comes to sing for the art. And we we get six billion perspectives that are like columns in the paper and read just like every other perspective. The Brooklyn guy with Welsh ancestry reads exactly like the Irish priest from from a farm. No, but he has an obnoxious dialect. That makes it different. No, no, I was talking about the fun master. Oh, right. Charlie Bloom is a Jewish kid from Brooklyn. You have to forgive me. These characters are all deeply unmemorable. And it is spelled like Charlie Bloom. C-H-O-L-L-Y. Until we get a bit from his perspective where he's Professor Charles Bloom in 1947. Do you see what he did there? It's clever. It's not. I would find it cute enough in a book I liked better. I like dumb, I don't obvious like, shit like that. Yeah, but I don't like this, and it, it's it got no follow-through. Mm-hmm. This story does not in any way connect with Bloom's overall arc, because he doesn't publish the story. Nor does he learn anything about not publishing a story, about when to have discretion. Nope, he's just There's there. No arc. He sure does observe what's going on with other people, including the fact that Darius decides the only solution is to murder this 12 to 13 year old. Yeah, because Darius is like, oh shit, that shit was supposed to be mine. My boss is a millionaire. I worship the god of money who has enriched us. Literally. Literally. Satan did give them this money. But only because Eric is a genius, as we need to be repeatedly told. He is so great, isn't he? Whereas Darius is not a genius of money. He's just bringing in them sheep to the fold. Because, after all, slut. Yep. There's weirdly repeated references to to child sexual exploitation in this book. Because Father What's-His-Fuck talks about it as an ill of the world as well. And God is just kind of like, oh, but I can't deal with that. Because you've put God and Satan very literally in this book and talking to human people. About child sexual exploitation. Like, it's a weirdly specific through line that doesn't go anywhere. It's just there. I guess I better, I guess I better ask the question of evil. You know, I don't have an answer for it, but put it in there. So the opera that Christine has come to sing, huh? Oh boy, it's called The Angel of Shiloh. It's topical, y'all. It it doesn't even sound like it has a good structure. Like, I'm not an expert. But it seems badly structured. I don't know much about opera as a form, but I'm just dying at the fact that in Like, the act breaks seem badly timed Mm -hmm. for what is described as happening. And again, this is the man who shits on LaRue's decision to make Eric's opera opera in the novel Faust, as though that isn't perfectly fucking attuned to what's going on thematically in the story, you dumb fucker. As though he didn't, like, watch Faust and think, what if I made a story about people while Faust is happening. Uh, but, but Lloyd Webber made up a fake opera called Masquerade. No, he made up Don Juan Triumphant. Right. 
Excuse you. Masquerade is the big number that opens Act 2. Ah. So is he ever going to put out Don Juan Triumphant? That would be hilarious. No, because it's too edgy for the human spirit. Okay, but that would be fucking hilarious if one day he just puts out Don Juan Triumphant and manages to get people in the theater three fucking times for his bullshit. I mean, most people didn't get into the theater twice for his bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, the Angel of Shiloh is about the Confederacy. The Angel of Shiloh is that fucking romance novel. Which one? The Civil War romance novel that everybody is deeply ashamed was a specific subgenre about the gentle Southern Belle reckoning with the fact that her lover is a union man. These stories generally functioned specifically by contrasting Southern gentility with the idea that all of the violence is coming from the North, so they don't have to reckon with uh, the explicit violence of slavery. Hmm. That is convenient. Because if we localize the South as a gentle white woman then we don't have to reckon with slavery as an institution of violence, nor with the fact that that white lady is party to that violence. What? No, but she's a nurse here. They're always a nurse. Every fucking time they're a nurse. <laughs> and she's... They're always a nurse. And they're always fighting the impulses of this rough northern man who just doesn't understand social graces. He's been horribly injured and his face is bandaged. Subtle. Yeah, so it's about this southern lady who's totally into the northerner. They get engaged, then the war breaks out, which somehow they didn't notice was happening until that minute. Nobody noticed the family dinners? A little tense. <laughs> he got a little quiet when the, you know, the human beings that we owned came into the room. <laughs> I mean, probably he didn't care. Yeah, probably. He was probably a racist too. Yeah, probably. Because he was willing to be engaged to this woman. Yeah, probably. (laughs) He went north, and then it turns out he's like this leader of the super badass band of raiders, and his face gets blowed off, and he's in the hospital where she works, as the other guy, who is also pressing his suit, is there. And she she dumps him. Yep, they they share a tender farewell as she gives... His ring back and fucks off. And, and, but, but he doesn't get executed for being a badass soldier because he doesn't have a face to identify him by anymore. Y'all listen, I know that I'm in the minority of people who like Phantom of the Opera in that I have zero desire for Eric and Christine to get together, but like, he's so mad about it. He's so mad that she turned him down. But the thing is, Christine had a very simple request of her of her dead dad. She asked if he could send her an angel. <laughs> the nicest angel. That's not fair. Stitch is a good boy. <laughs> Stitch is a good boy. <laughs> did more for her than Eric did for Christine. Stitch did a lot. <laughs> like, it's, it's like for Forsyth... Christine deciding that she doesn't want to be with this 50-year-old man who kidnapped her is the same as the hot girl turning down the nerd. He's only in his 20s. The hot girl should turn down the nerd. (gasps) A shocking The hot girl is fully allowed to turn down the nerd if they're not interested in any of the same things and he's not able to conduct himself in social situations that she enjoys being in. 
No, I'm no. saying it. Purely because she's shallow. Guess what? Christine has things to do, places to be, people to see. This dude lives in a basement. <laughs> he lives in a basement. He's literally old enough to be her father, and he does have long mold. Yeah. Also, the relationship is built on a lie and kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And also he raped her. <laughs> yeah. In this. Uh-huh. Like, at no point in this does she say that what happened was consensual or that she was into it. Nope. No, she just keeps referring to it as that thing that happened. She was in a swoon, and then she woke up and he was gone. And there was jizz there. Romantic. So she performs this fucking musical once, goes out to meet Eric, like, by dead of night. To talk about their kid. And Darius is there, ready to shoot the kid. But, ah. And also, Charlie Bloom... And Raul, and their priest show up. And the Scooby gang. Just to do nothing. None of these people serve any function. To bear witness. They all stand there silently. Raul does not get one line. Nope. In the whole book. He does not. Nor does he get a floating perspective. He does not. And again, I am in the minority. I blame Patrick Wilson for performing literally the best Raul ever. And that was the first one I saw. But Raul's fine. He's fine. There was some weird ass tension in Love Never Does. Uh-huh. At least the Australian production that we watched. I read that fic. I read that fic a lot. Weird tension. <laughs> yeah. So in the midst of all of this, it goes horribly wrong and Christine is shot dead. Womp womp. And Raul just kind of leaves his kid there with this stranger. Yeah, he lets the 12 to 13 year old make a decision as to who he would like to spend the rest of his underage days with. There's a lot of offensive talk about this is your real father. Not the guy who raised him for 13 years. Hell, not even the priest who's more co-raised him for 13 years and is more of a father to him than this asshole. This random creepy dude. Who donated some sperm. Unrequested By sperm. By raping his mother. But no, no. He goes on to be a wealthy, you know, a wealthy contributor to the arts. And it's... And they change their name to something else so that the author doesn't have to think of anything. But they're still well known in America today. But but it's not Mulheim. The end. It takes 178 pages to tell that story in it's very just, large print. It's just plain badly written. Uh-huh. Like, I don't even go here and I did not like this. Although you have seen the musical. I, I saw the Phantom of the Opera musical, like... The, the stage recording ages ago, but I wasn't paying a lot of attention because I don't really go here. And you made me watch Love Never Dies. <laughs> yes, so Love Never Dies is not a direct adaptation of this book. As near as I can- Andrew Lloyd Webber is not as close of friends with Frederick Forsyth as Frederick Forsyth is with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oops. <laughs> if you think about it, Frederick Forsyth is kind of like- the phantom in this equation. It's <laughs> just so dumb wrong by. Yeah. As near as the Wikipedia will tell me, Love Never Dies is basically the unused ideas from their brainstorming session that committed Phantom of Manhattan. In which, um, instead of Darius, uh, Madame Giri is, is the money-grubbing bad guy. Which I hate, thank you. And Meg is the victim of sex trafficking. Yeah, so we split that character into two characters. But also, for some reason, we're supposed to still think that Eric is some sort of financial genius when it's extremely well established that literally every aspect of his business 
was accomplished through these women submitting to exploitation to fund it. Yep. Also, Meg is in love with Eric now, which... No, Meg is in love with, okay. with Christine. The play wants us to think that Meg is in love with Eric. Even the dialogue doesn't hold that up, though. She's nope. clearly deeply in love with Christine. Oh, extremely. <laughs> like, damn, the eye contact is so good. <laughs> and also, that's one of... The, the duet they have is one of, like three good songs in this entire cursed musical. Now, we watched the Australian revised edition. Yeah. There is no filmed version of the original <laughs> UK version. <laughs> they they didn't, buried they didn't that. They managed to get a camera in the theater in that amount of time. No, because they ran it in previews and then closed it because the reviews were so bad to do rewrites. Because people were not into the Christine automaton, I guess. I don't know how that figures into the plot, y'all. Hamaton. Um, I guess because monkey. I guess. And, well, and there's a fucking, there's a spooky wedding mannequin in the play, in the original play. The original play? Yeah. Like the Lloyd Webber version or the one he ripped off? Not the Yeston Coppet version. That's, that plays a more dadly Eric, which honestly, those are my favorite versions. Y'all have- You know, the one that's dunked on in the prologue to this book. Yeah. Fuck you, Frederick Forsyth, by the way. Y'all, if you haven't seen the Claude Rains Phantom of the Opera, it's pretty good. The really unfortunate thing about Love Never Dies, of all the many unfortunate things. There are many. In which, like, Eric is a, a, an abusive drunkard, apparently. No, no, Raoul is. Uh, that's what I meant. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, Eric is too. That's Let's true. <laughs> that's true, but we aren't. So rather than just write Raoul the fuck out of the play, they've turned him into an abusive alcoholic, the number one bad fanfic move. But uh, but the worst thing about it is definitely that, okay, so the worst thing about it is definitely that, okay, the kiddo has been aged down to nine, and this child is trying to perform, I guess. He's fine. He's a he's a child actor. He's not a... Sp- he's got a decent voice. Yeah, oh yeah, his singing is fine, but boy, the material is not. Mm. Um, th- there's a spooky carriage... It's very steampunk wannabe. It's set in the early 1900s. But so there's this number that I guarantee you in previews was between Eric and Christine. I hope That's the only possible way this number could have happened. And it's maybe the best best number in the show, both in terms of like writing and the the stagecraft and... uh, choreography because there's a lot of cool shit with mirrors going up and down yeah because it's the part that's set in the house of mirrors but it's not christine nope it's her kid it's their child philippe doing this duet number with eric that's so horny it's just unacceptably (laughs) horny this song i will also link this shit because we were sitting there just growing increasingly uncomfortable. This horny minor key and he's like crouching <laughs> over his shoulder and, and just asking, do you see how sexy all this twisted abnormal stuff is? Like that that's the song. Uh-huh. Are you into this twisted stuff? That's the song. Uh-huh. And that would be perfectly fine. If it were meant to be in a, a song about given to somebody he's attracted to. But it's a nine-year-old. It's a nine-year-old who is his son. <laughs> also, there, there's a shitty number with Christine where it's it's a duet, but it shouldn't be. 
so many people have made jokes about this number, but fuck it, I gotta dunk on it too. Because it's this forever long number about how they fucked one time. And it shouldn't it, be a duet. Like, even I know it shouldn't be a duet. They're not disagreeing about anything. They're just like, yep, hey, remember the time we fucked? Uh-huh, and, and it's Yep, this, we fucked that time. <laughs> yeah, it's this call and response that's just affirming what the other person is saying. It's not like, remember the time we fucked? I don't remember it that way. Or it's mm-hmm. not like, remember the time we fucked? I don't want to talk about that. Uh-huh, or even like, hey, remember the time we fucked? Ah, yes, it was... I, I was having such conflicted emotions at the time. It's just, remember the, the time we fucked? Yeah, we sure did fuck. We did. We fucked a lot. <laughs> and we boned. <laughs> it's uh, There's no tension. And it's written... It's written in this extremely attempting to ape operatic style, but it's just obnoxious. Like, it's... There's these shrill, stabbing violins, and it's the least sexy song. Stabbing violins. I stand by my statement. (laughs) It's so bad. Also, Meg is... Meg has a psychotic break at the end. Yep. And attempts to drown the child. To nobody's surprise, since it's been extensively established that he's incapable of swimming. Honestly, her performance was good. Like, she had a shit role, but... Well, let's face it. The the lesser woman in any musical is always the best role. It's like when we had to sit through Jekyll and Hyde and, like, the overall writing wasn't good. All of the actors were good. But the secondary woman killed it. Sorry, I'm attempting to look up the Australian cast because, damn it, she deserved... Sharon uh, Millerchip, I believe, is her name. She was good. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's so fucking thankless. And also- but I love that it's not even, it's not even Andrew Lloyd Webber admitting that I wrote this with my buddy F- Fred. Yeah. <laughs> You're not even good enough for that. Nope. After that worshipful intro. Just the tongue bathing. Nauseating that intro. <laughs> I think you can read it in full if you go on to, like, Google Books, because there's, like, a 24-page book preview, and that's, like, a quarter of the book. (laughs) So you could read this whole awful, awful intro. Okay, but I do also want to tip my hat to the fact that, in addition to his son, Eric also has way more chemistry with with Raul than Christine. In in the, the musical, yeah. Yeah. It's awkward. They have a duet. Where they agree to bet for, for Christine's pussy. As one does. As one does. I mean, if 80s movies have taught me anything, uh, Raul does not have a weird dick in this. No, his dick's fine. He's just a drunk. You know, that alcoholism. And that we have we saw him go get a drink twice. And he's a shouty dick to her a few times. But, but also it's established that he has lost his money because... In the musical, seeking gold is a good thing, and and failing to have it makes you one inferior. It's very confused. It's so... And it's so long. <laughs> it's a musical. Aren't they all long? It's a very long musical. Some are longer in spirit. What, like that one y'all blame for the downfall of everything? Listen, Hello Dolly knows what it did. And by that I mean tanked. The musical theater film for decades. <laughs> also, my other favorite thing is that there is still a website for Love Never Dies, which finished its like last gasps of a tour in 2017. But you can go to the landing page 
and it, it says, sign up to the waitlist below to be the first to hear about the Love Never Dies world tour. Wow, it really never does die. It refuses to die. Love refuses to die. <laughs> no matter how we beg, love will not die. I think we found a subtitle for this episode. This book was bad. It was really bad. Again, even from the perspective of somebody who's not invested at all, it's bad writing. It's flat. The use of multiple perspectives doesn't actually add anything. It's just cheap. And again, all of the voices sound the same, except on a very superficial level, but they all have the same message underneath, which is just worshipful adoration of Christine's purity and desirability, coupled with awe at Eric's genius and money-making abilities. While retaining basically none of what actually makes the character interesting. And also a weird conviction that Eric can be redeemed to Christ, which he is, versus the idea that Darius, who goes by Malta periodically, cannot because he is lost to Satan, despite them both doing the same things. I just, you know, I want to throw in here at the end that, uh, that, that political party that Frederick Forsyth was involved with better off out the one that supported Brexit as far back as 2006. The Conservative Party, the Tories in the UK, disavowed it because it was too much. The cons the Tories were like, this is a bit much, isn't it? So basically what we're saying is this book is bad and, Fe and Frederick Forsyth is a fucker. And there's a lot of like lower level rumblings of other unsavory things in it. Yeah, it's just unpleasant from top to bottom. Like, you can say you want to separate the art from the artist, except that the artist makes art. We're, yeah, the artist's worldview is usually pretty solidly infused in their art. Like, even when I make art about characters who don't reflect my worldview, the way the plot works does. I mean, we do still have Animation Runner Karomi, a good thing that I love, despite the fact that its director is a fucker. Mm-hmm. So... Not 100% of the time, but... It is a thing to, you know, you, you can't like, just pretend there's no relationship. Right. Like, you can often trace the beats. If you're looking for phantom things that aren't this, um, like I said, the, 40, the 1942 version with Claude Rains is surprisingly fun. It, it is also the one that you may have seen pe people took some screenshots of Tumblr on where they split Raoul into two suitors and then at the end of the movie they just tell Christine to fuck off and go to lunch together. It's very good, that movie. <laughs> um, you know what? You go, gay Raoul twins. Hell yeah. I, I also recently found this uh, webcomic called Phantomstein, which is pretty enjoyable. Is very about... Is that their tabloid name? Ew. No, it's because the phantom- it's because Eric is also the creature. Frankenstein's monster. This is what- he, he went to the opera house- So Phantom Stein. Yes. <laughs> I know words. But- but it's good, and- and the way the author writes Raul and Christine is, like, super fucking cute, and I like them. And it's a nice comic. Yeah, there's lots of- there's lots of phantom adaptations that aren't this. Hell, most of them have more to offer than this one does. This is just bad. Yeah, it's not fun. It's not even fun bad. Sorry about that, listeners. <laughs>
But uh, if you did like this episode, you can always find more of our stuff by going to SoundCloud and looking up Trash and Treasures. That's our mainline podcast. You can also go and find episodes on our Patreon at patreon.com slash trashandtreasures, where if you become a donor, you can get access to episodes early. You can get Dorothy's recipes that she does for this show. Episodes a day early. Mm -hmm. And bonus content, even, which is very exciting. Or, We'd like to thank all of you who have uh, given to us since we've opened our Patreon. Yeah, we're really touched. Honestly, we didn't we didn't expect it to do much, and folks have really turned up. It's heartwarming and shit. We appreciate <laughs> you. If you want to talk to us, you can always email us at uh, trashtreasures at gmail dot com. That's yes, right. That is a new email address. We got a shiny new one on Gmail. For when Outlook eventually shuts down. Or you can get a hold of us on social media. We're on Tumblr at trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com. Or we're on Twitter at TrashPod. Uh, come say hi to us or, you know, send us an email. We'll say hi to you on the show. Uh, for example, at TomTificate. You're right. Dan Brown is extremely fun to dunk on. We agree. <laughs> we should do it again sometime. <laughs> But not this very next time. Uh, the next Drunk Book Club we're going to be looking at is actually going back to something we did over, well, a couple, well, in couple months ago. Yeah. Back during spooky season, the last holidays. This time we're going to be reading a book by Annette Curtis Claus. Uh, we covered the movie adaptation of her book, Blood and Chocolate, but it, we figured it would be treading the same ground to be to look at that book. So we decided to look at her vampire novel instead. The Silver Kiss. When you say it like that, it makes me feel icky. <laughs> I'm sorry, my voice just does that. I was born to be a late night radio DJ. Going out to all you lovers out there. <laughs> Except for the ones with lung mold. <laughs> Actually, no. There's probably lots of perfectly nice people with lung mold. <laughs> Except to all you stalkers out there. All right. Well, until next time, take care of yourselves, listeners. See y'all.